Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real, guys. God only knows what you clicked on, what the timestamp looks like, but it may be epic. So (laughs) if it turns out in the future that it's just some unholy number, we apologize in advance, but God damn it, are we excited about this. I'm Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard, but that sort of goes without saying. Yeah, of course it does. And uh, we're old pals, and we host this podcast uh, together. Be real, guys. Normally, we take on three movies based around a specific theme and reappraise them, rewatch them, re-review them. But since it's but not this week, no- god damn it! <laughs> Given uh, the fact that we had extra time and we like movies and and, re- and hate our families equally, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I have a wonderful family, but you, you do the thinking. The thinking was with this Thanksgiving break, we'd have extra time. Though I watched most of them like during the work week, to be quite honest. <laughs> so did I. Uh, um, that we would do six movies based on a, uh, a theme that we've, Chance and I have discussed for years, which is the idea of the twin film. Yeah, the twin twin action movies in particular. There are other twin, there are other twin films. You got your Wyatt Earp and your Tombstone. There's, a, there's plenty of listicles. About and for this. those of you, yeah, and those of you unfamiliar with the twin film, it's a movie, uh, it's two movies released in the same year of roughly the same premise. Yes. And it happened uh, three times that we're going to focus on. Uh, once in 1997 with uh, Volcano and Dante's Peak. Mm-hmm. Once in 1998 with Armageddon and Deep Impact. Mm-hmm. And then again in 2005 with Flight Plan and Red Eye. Mm-hmm. And we're starting with Armageddon, yes? God damn it, we're starting with Armageddon. <laughs> Michael Bay's Armageddon. Criterion Collection entry, Armageddon. How is that possible? Um, I don't know, but when I watched it, when I uh, borrowed it from the uh, UNL library, Love Library. That's uh, right. On DVD. I'm just my college experiences even now is like really dated. Um, when we still used DD, uh, DVDs, mm-hmm. uh, I rented it and it was the Criterion Collection and had like hours of like bonus features and like I didn't watch any of it. I just watched the movie. That's good. Yeah. You, the, the one, the one the thing film... you don't need is more when it comes to Armageddon. Right. <laughs> um, but the plot of this movie, Chance. <laughs> Thank you. That was such a plate throw over to me when I wasn't expecting it. Um, well, I don't know. The plot of this movie is that there is an asteroid the size of, and watch me confuse this with Deep Impact, but I think in this one it's the size of Texas, yes? Is that the uh Oh, yeah, it's much, much bigger than the Deep Impact one. Much bigger. <laughs> yes, well, okay. That one was the size, the, the Deep Impact one is the size of Manhattan, and this one is the size of Texas. Okay, that's right, that's right. And the only people who are going to be able to stop it uh, are people who can get onto said asteroid and uh, get an explosive well within it 
so it blasts apart and can be reflected by the atmosphere. The people who are going to do that are your one-of-a-kind prodigy oil drillers. Uh, like, your 21st century Daniel Plainviews, yes, if you will. Absolutely. Actually, 20th century, because this is 1990s, yeah. Yes. Eight. <laughs> And God, are they not uh, military or astronaut types? They're not your Neil Armstrong types. Uh, they're but they certainly are types. Yeah, <laughs> it's really true. You've got your kind of dirty dad, leader of it all, uh, played by Bruce Willis. Uh, his daughter, who grew up in the rig, played by Liv Tyler. You've got Buscemi as the pervy genius you've got michael clark duncan just the way uh movies use will Patton as the will Patton <laughs> character he's back with his gummy bears and his oreos oh my god he is ready he is so ready um who else am i missing owen wilson <laughs> um the movie doesn't think much of him uh right and then oh ben affleck uh, of peter course. stormare is like the stereotypical russian crazy as uh, space dementia astronaut mm. your moon guy if you will yep uh billy bob thornton is your nasa commander uh jason isaacs is the is the scientist oh who God, sets everyone straight on the plan um uh, ben affleck did you mention him sorry yeah of course uh ben affleck is uh the rebel on the rig who, unbeknownst to Bruce Willis for about 30 seconds, uh, is uh, sleeping with and is madly in love with uh, an animal cracker. Yeah, their kind love, of love is pretty pure. With, uh, with Liv Tyler, his daughter. What hit us? Small asteroid fragments. This morning. How big were those? Those were nothing. The size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking. How big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer, the end of mankind. Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast, and the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. Can I just start from the first fucking frame of this movie? Yeah, do it. I don't know where else you would start. Where Charlton Heston begins to tell you how the world is. Is that who that is? It's Charlton Heston. Ah. And then you see, like... Like the screen explodes, and like what's left is the word Armageddon on fucking fire. Oh, I literally wrote down take it easy, title card. We picked there's a few movies in here that just love to kill innocent people. Oh, this movie relishes the opportunity, none with more stylistic impunity than this one, I would say. I tell you what I love about this movie from like even like the opening couple scenes like 9-11 did like no favors for this movie and the amount of destruction that happens to New York. No. I think the way of like understanding this movie is also like analyzing what Michael Bay feels like is like America. Like it's it's giving a sizable credit. Well, if you look at like all, because Michael Bay likes to, you know, focus on these like very specific characters, but then like he loves to pull back and show like your average Joe on the street, like reacting sure. to like everything he's ever known being destroyed. Yeah, um, absolutely. But like the choices he makes for like the characters you see, like, like sort of create this like version of America that's like 1950s, 90s. 
You mean like the Hawaiian guy who's selling the Godzilla figurines? Right. And Eddie <laughs> Griffin like on the bike with the like, dog? The kids in like cloth baseball hats like throwing it around as they watch like things fly overhead. Yeah. You know, like they're they're in the 90s, but they're they're playing a, a little league game with all wooden bats, you know? Yeah. He was always going to zoom out, which was kind of the funny thing about this movie because there's this point where they need to swear all these unqualified oil riggers to secrecy. But like right. that information is getting out because Michael Bay is not going to not show the entire world reacting to this. Right. And I mean, this will come into play about this will come into play about um, deep impact. The idea of like just the sheer loss of life and like what it means to this director Mm-hmm. Because for Michael Bay, like sheer loss of life, he's just like fuck yeah, like like just kill everyone. He just blows up Paris for like really no plot reason. Yeah, like you already know the thing is gonna hit the planet. Like you don't need like a oh where did this pre comet come from? Oh Paris <laughs> is gone. <laughs> yeah. Whereas until the main events, you know, Deep Impact doesn't really allow that many people to get like gratuitously hurt. That's true. That's true. Ben Affleck in this movie is horrendous. Oh As my God. That animal cracker scene made me want to kill myself. It's so much grosser than I remember it being. And it was gross. I remember <laughs> it to be very gross. What sucks about it is that like, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck sort of have chemistry, but Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler don't really have any chemistry. So it's hard to be like, you should marry that girl. You clearly have no affection for Yeah. or like you should risk it all. Like it just, it it didn't have the, like the weight that I think it needed to. I feel like I'm sort of beating around the bush here. Yeah. Michael Bay has horrible taste. And the script oh, yeah. for this movie is horrible. Yeah, but I yeah, think yeah. the plot is pretty decent, point for point, by the time they well, get up on the asteroid and experience the challenges of the two crews getting separated. Yeah, I mean, there is a good movie, I think, in here. 90 but minutes. It's just such a strange. A it, it just takes such. Like, the choices he makes, Michael Bay, like, to tell this story are just so, like, weird and, like, ask a lot of you. You know, yeah. like my my biggest thing was like we know full well that like in space, right? They're like you can't hear sound because there's like nothing. <laughs> I didn't think so. About that. Every time, not only when they're on the asteroid, but even when there's a shot passing of the asteroid, you hear like it's speaking. Did you notice <laughs> the this? personification of the asteroid is way too much for me. The literal right, it's personification. Like every time it goes, like it pans across it. It's like, oh, mom, mom, mom. <laughs> I like that. It's just so demonic. And I like that Michael Bay imagines the color palette of hell is also that of gone in 60 seconds. Like that's the, that's right. pretty much the visual landscape of what's being on the asteroid is like. Right. Yeah. It's, oh. it's, it's that or being in like impoverished Los Angeles type. This, I find it's hard to describe where the cutoff is between what I sort of find admirable about this pre-Transformers Michael Bay, where the like the style of filmmaking and the scope and the soundtrack are so steroidal that right. it is like that it is one of a kind. That the only person who can make fun of it 
is Michael Bay, which he like eventually does in something like Pain and Gain. But like you think about he he kind of transcends how what you can make fun of about these big action movies because his are just so big. Right. And there's a part of that that is really convincing, I think. Until people speak, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, like, what keeps him from being, like, a Spielberg is, like, he's inherently not interested in people. He's only interested in explosions. Right, 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 right. So I just, I don't I don't think I can call this movie admirable because no, it, no, like, no, no, doesn't no. care to... It doesn't care to, like, make me think. It just cares me to, like, for me to watch. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like you go to a movie for more than that, though. You go for a little heart as well. And this oh, movie, yes. this movie has no, no heart. You know what I like is when the soundtrack is really getting ready to mean business, how it goes briefly Celtic when, like, things right. are really in dire straits. Right. I feel like that's a good microcosm for describing the and rest like, of it. <sighs> I feel like this movie is pretty similar in like aesthetic to the Aerosmith song that sort of followed mm-hmm. it in mm-hmm. the where like it's good things. It's Aerosmith. There are like interesting moments to it, but ultimately like really that many violins. Did we need that many? Right. You're going to just wipe out any sort of like band element and it's just going to be one guy singing over violins. Yeah. So I feel it, the same way about the movie. It's an orchestral like, ensemble the size of Texas. Right. You could have just given us like something a little bit in its ambition. It sort of lost me. How would you rate this bad boy? Let's exp- since maybe, hopefully, I, although I don't know why there would be for this particular episode, but let's explain the rating system super briefly, just in case anyone new is stopping by. Oh, you think people really started listening to the podcast for the <laughs> hour and a half one? Maybe so. Interesting. That's an interesting uh, outlook you have there. Anyway, we rate movies on two levels. Mm-hmm. Uh technical quality, yep. uh narrative narrative flow, uh, you know, like sort of the the tenets of what make like a, a well constructed yeah. movie. Execution. Execution. And the other one is how watchable the movie is. Say you're just like popping something on on a Saturday afternoon, even if you've seen it before, like what's what's the watchability? Entertainment so, value, yeah. What you entertainment what you take value. Away. Uh so a good good movie it's like the the Departed. Yeah, I could watch the Departed like a ton of times because it's super long. It's got all these super great like moments in it, and like it's also a well made movie, fun to watch. And a good bad movie that's well made, but you've no desire to watch it multiple times would be like Schindler's like, List, like Requiem for a Dream. A bad good movie would be one that's flaws jump out at you for sure, but you know you don't mind popping it on, kind of like um... you know any. Number of Kurt Russell movies. Or John uh, Carpenter movies that Kurt Russell isn't in. And then Bad Bad is, you know, failing in both qualities. You're Juana Mans. Ooh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're... uh, Oh, I thought of a good one the other day. Uh, You're Monkey Bones. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, uh Uh-huh. I would agree with that, I suppose. Oh, man. So, yeah. uh, Armageddon, 
you know, I was trying to appreciate it because I feel like it's pretty well known. Go there, buddy. Go there, buddy. That Michael Bay and uh, his films are bad. Uh, that. There, just just th- put it to bed. That, put is, it to bed. that his taste is an affront to most of what we consider good about humanistic or like well put together films. Do it. But this movie's bad, bad. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this movie, it, I thought you were going to try to make a case. I, I could hear it in your voice making a case for bad, good. A few minutes ago, the United States ambassadors to every country in the world the leaders of those nations what I'm about to tell you. Comments are still headed for Earth. Um, the next movie mm-hmm. is uh, pretty much identical in uh, Conceit. That's why we, uh, that's the premise of this podcast, this particular episode. So, just to refresh you, if you lost us 15 seconds ago, there's a big, like, comet thing. Yeah coming towards earth and elijah wood from uh who's frodo the famous leo biederman um apparently yeah he discovers the comet coming towards earth in something that i've been assured in the imdb goof section is not actually a possible scenario of him (laughs) looking through a telescope um and he finds it and then this movie takes such a weird turn. Can we just break this movie down scene by scene Let's to start? Let's do it, because the man that I know you're alluding to does not need to be killed by that truck. Yes! That scene doesn't need to happen. Nope. <laughs> is that... But is, so basically what happens is, in the second scene... This is not a spoiler. This is a movie from 1997, or 1998. Yeah. Get over it. In the second scene... So... Uh, Frodo sends the result, like the picture from his uh, telescope to this like lab with a big planetarium and they, or a big, uh, what do you call it? That's like an uh, observatory. Like an observatory. And they have like a big telescope. So he like types in four numbers and the whole thing rotates and they look at it. He's like, fuck, he's right. And he prints out all these files and he gets in his Jeep, which is basically like the same Jeep with the same fate as the, uh, what's his name from Seinfeld and the, Jurassic Park. Yeah. And he like, for some reason, because he has a floppy disk in his hand, he suddenly like is impaired. His driving is impaired. And like, he's trying to make these phone calls, but it's an age where like cell service isn't ubiquitous or something. It was a reference I didn't really understand. Right. And then like a truck comes and you're thinking like, they're not going to make him hit that truck. Are they? They're going to have it like be a near miss. Cause that would be a total weird cliche to have in this movie for no reason. Yeah. And then he fucking hits the truck and explodes. And then... Oh, my God. See, but I feel like that scene, though, is is symptomatic of some major... Deep Impact, like, I want to say three or four times has some issues where you think there's, like, a much different cut of the movie where the plot is different and the characters have different relationships, and that's kind of the first indicator. Because you think that the fact that that truck exploded is going to stop the information about the incoming comet from getting to the government in time, but it does not. It has no bearing. Do you want to know some of the other ones of those? Okay, so like our way into this movie is James Cromwell is the Secretary of the Treasury 
who I love that plot, by the way, like the way they the way they sort of figure out what the plot of the movie is. But didn't it strike you as weird to have like someone who's a respected sort of supporting actor like James Cromwell? I feel like there's a different cut of this movie out there somewhere where like the secretary of treasury, like that plot plays a larger role. I thought at the end she was going back to his house I just right. think this movie's chopped in weird ways. There was some disagreement. Well, that's the thing too. You, it, cause it's such an ensemble cast. You end up really like not, I mean the same thing with Armageddon, you end up like other than Tay Leone's character, not really like knowing any of these characters very well. Mm-hmm. But if you can, for, if you can sidestep that, all of that, I have a hard time doing that. I, I feel like this probably will be our sticking point, And we've, We've talked about this for the last two weeks of the of the six movies we talked about. Deep Impact may be the biggest sticking point because I'll I guess I'll launch my initial salvo here. I think that I can get past the flaws of Armageddon so much easier because you just know that the person who made it makes stupid artistic decisions. And I think that Deep Impact is trying to be a movie that is smarter with more subtlety than like movies of this type on average, but I don't right. think it's put itself in a good position to pull that off because it's still a movie like kind of like an, an Emmerich movie. Like, you know, all the people who watch these like paid close attention to Independence Day and that movie's success. Right. And you know that they're all like, since we're not going to have like a meaningful like singular point of view that we're sticking to, we're going all across the board with all of these different people. And I don't think that Deep Impact is like, arranged in a way that works to enjoy the ensemble cast i don't know i'm sort of willing to overlook the way i was not able to look overlook michael bay's uh armageddon i i I feel like i'm i'm willing to forgive this movie because it is not only like a big dumb action movie and i love those but because it's dressed up in sort of a in how, what you were talking about in sort of like a, a more intellectual, subtle way. And I think that like the journalist entry point into this movie is like sort of interesting because you see this woman, I mean, a, a good chunk of the plot, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of it, the most of the world, like we don't know the details of what's happening. We're just sort of, and what we know a little bit more than Taya Leone knows. So we like want her to like get there. And there's something compelling about seeing that journalistic, you know, sort of capturing of details. Having someone who's sort of on the outside guiding you through is like a good way to tell this story without being so like bullshit special effects heavy. I'm anti-ing also because... <laughs> Taya Leone is also I think just one of my just one of my least favorite performers of like the last like quarter century. I just I just hate <laughs> I hate seeing her on screen. There's and I'm trying I I've been trying for 2 weeks to put my finger on what bothers me so much. She puts on this Is it because she's a blank face with every emotion? That could be it. But I think yeah, I mean actually that's probably a good way into talking about it because I think she puts on this concern that is so much. 
I don't think she's buying into it. I think movies routinely ask her to be so emotional and so sentimental when like when I look at her right. face, I think she hates doing that. And like that kind of watch is so unappealing. That's a good point. I mean, like I wonder what this movie would have looked like with some bigger stars in it. Yeah, that's a good question. If you think about it, like the only really like big star in it at that point would have been Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> who's in kind of like, I mean, he does have a big arc by the end of it, but it is kind of like a bit part. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the one joke, sort of like one dimensional, uh, sort of like American, like he's like putting like Buzz Aldrin or something. Uh, yeah. You know, like if we had that happen now, I'd be like, that guy's been up there, like throw him in the mix. I also, my, do you think this movie is fun? I didn't think this movie was any fun. I think this movie has a lot of fun in the way it it sort of like teases you with like the decisions these people are going to make. Like that's the only thing that's really like compelling about it is like, where is everyone going to be standing when like the shit hits the fan? That's true. And And because it has a lot of fun with like spoiler alert, like Taylioni, she dies at the ends, but she seems okay with it because she gets to be with her dad. You know, and then, like, of course, like, Frodo goes back for Lily Sobieski and co. And somehow escapes this, you know, speed of light tidal wave or speed of sound tidal wave on a motorbike. You know, that that whole scene is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I guess. Because it says that they're 15 miles from Virginia Beach, which means they're 15 <laughs> miles from the coast. And when the Morgan Freeman talks at the ends, he's just like, it, it hit the Ohio River. And it's like, how did it hit the Ohio River? It's <laughs> a good half Freeman. I like that. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it was <like> <laughs> how did it hit the Ohio River? But it like somehow five miles at most away from 15 miles away from Virginia Beach is not completely like destroyed. I just... Yeah, it's really true. And I just found How come that, that little kid, his motorbike, his wife, and her sister, they should be floating away somewhere. Let me tell you about my favorite subplot in this movie. It's how much the astronomy teacher hates Leo Biederman. Um, when right. he discovers the star at the beginning, the teacher suddenly like does not give a shit about space. Leo's like, I found a cool thing. And the teacher's like, space is stupid. Like, I'm going over. <laughs> and then when they have the assembly and Leo is like, I found the famous star. And the kid at the assembly stands up and they're like, Leo's going to have a bunch of sex. Even he's 13 and he looks like Elijah Wood, so he's not. But like the teacher right. is mad at that because he himself has never had sex in this subplot. <laughs> He thought I would have sex because of the fucking world's ending <laughs> comment. Oh, that's definitely my favorite undercurrent, I think. Yeah, that's that's a pretty deep read, but I'm willing to get I'm willing to go there for you. Um I think what redeems this movie is the fact that like you can tell underneath this movie there was at one point like a pretty good script. At one point. At one point there was a pretty good script, and like it's just sort of like it shines a light when it needs to to just like confuse you into thinking it makes sense, but I think it does it it does it well. Um I can appreciate a good light shine from time to time and I don't know, I found it uh I think I found it entertaining uh despite its flaws. Thus and you I'll, shall say. 
I'm going to give it a soft good good. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'm going to say that I was upset that the Russian astronaut didn't get to say goodbye to anyone during that maudlin scene. And then I was upset also that... Uh, there was also a different version of the movie where Taya had a relationship with Eric, the man on the helicopter, but that was all cut out, and that this movie <laughs> is a train wreck, and it's bad, bad. <laughs> You're going bad, I'm going bad, bad, bad without a doubt. You're just pissed. You're just pissed because I gave it a good good. That's the only reason. Otherwise, I, I, I could tell I was softening you up. <laughs> Give this movie a bad good where, where it belongs. I, no. I love this movie. We haven't the time. You called it good, good. I, it seems you do. It has its flaws. I'll admit mm. that. If you're thinking about watching it, which is ultimately the reason you listen to this podcast. It's um, on Netflix. I think I think you should watch it. It's on Netflix. And uh, yeah, I think you should give it a watch. I think you'll like it. I think Chance is definitely wrong. All right. Should we move forward uh, from not the threat from above but the threat from within the earth's core let's get into uh, volcano 1997 directed by mick johnson you know i was hoping we'd have some bit part actor who would show up three times but unfortunately just got we got two keith davids and we got two richard schiffs but i, <laughs> <laughs> I love richard Schiff. i can be sustained by that Oh man. Volcano's a different beast, man, because it's essentially a disaster movie. When Michael Bay goes to such great lengths, or not great lengths, but he thinks he's going to great lengths to show you the anticipation of an oncoming asteroid from the vantage point of every continent, Volcano asks <laughs> what it means for a giant disaster to be a municipal problem. If we could discuss a little bit the genre of Volcano and Dante's Peak, I don't think they're simply volcano movies. I think they are volcano movies about a civil servant versus urban nature. I think that's a great way to put it. I think that's a great way to put it. Last explosion in the MacArthur Park area. Rescue crews. Public Works lost seven guys. What's going on? Freak accident on the storm drain. They had a steam pipe. It got scalded. Steam did that. Steam doesn't charge tissue like this. Nothing. Something else. We got a problem. Number four train westbound. Temperature on board reads 20 degrees above normal. That lake was 62 degrees yesterday. Today it's up to 68. That's a sunny day. It sort of posits what would happen if a volcano erupted right in the fucking middle of Los yes, Angeles. With its epicenter at the La Brea Tar Pits. Oh, my God. And then Tommy Lee Jones as our civil servant, yeah. who's like the head of emergency yeah. management, just fucking emergency manages the shit out of this volcano. I just I think that the perspective and the smallness that this like otherwise like pretty I mean, it's it's a movie that definitely embraces the cliches of action and disaster movies, but the setup and like its initial context is so small and manageable and like daily life that it makes somehow the stakes, I think resonate more with you. Would you agree with that? Right. I absolutely agree. And I also agree, or I also it's building off of that. I feel like, in just sort of like a production sense, this movie also refuses to like all the characters refuse to acknowledge the fact that they're in a movie called Volcano. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, none of them 
up until like the last 10 minutes really of this movie, nobody believes that this is a volcano. That's true. Yeah. What is that? What's the fire coming out of the ground? No one will say lava. No, one's, the people on the news are just like, it's like a liquid fire. And yeah, like none of them have even heard of lava, <laughs> like let alone willing to admit that there's a volcano in LA. <sighs> Oh my god. And this one did such a good job of being of its day too. Like the setup is right. all like a collage of nineties Southern California consumerism. Like and the whole time as it's like kind of floating from like mall to radio persona to making breakfast with yeah, the news, yeah, you're yeah. like, Yeah, I could watch that get burned by like a geological right. anomaly. It's a really good setup. And Tommy Lee Jones It's well it's it's the setup of Tommy Lee Jones uh, directing a gang of misfit civil servants, which is like the best thing that he can do, like all of the fugitive. Yeah. He's such so he works for Los Angeles' uh, city of Emer- or city office of emergency management is, is where he works. But right. he is so, like this movie is not as good if like he just believes in this. He's such a leader of people that like when he is barking out instructions for how to stop the lava from leaving this certain LA boulevard you really believe that like this is the end all be all and it's like it's a testament to small writing i think that like these these other movies yeah. are afraid of like what will happen if something the size of the us's uh second largest state hits everything and this one scares you in terms of what will happen if we don't bring cinder blocks to stop it from getting onto the next boulevard it's just sort of like a fun for me, like a fun movie with just sort of like a lot of weird things in it mm-hmm. too. Like they have a lot of fun with the premise of this movie and like the recurring jokes. Yeah. Like I think my favorite character in the movie is the phone call chief of police. <laughs> Rock, Rock, is that you, Rock? <laughs> I love that. That's funny. I found. You know, I want you know, we like David Morse to be in as many movies as possible. So weren't you weren't you a oh, little man. disappointed when he wasn't the uh, racist cop who had that change of heart? Oh, he definitely was that racist cop. He like couldn't do it though, like because of like scheduling conflicts. But they definitely wrote that part for yeah, for him. They wanted yeah. Morse, but they couldn't get him. Well, this movie has such a weird and sort of interesting post Ferguson read to it, don't you think? Uh, yeah. Well. The idea of like, and it like really at the end just like shoves it down your throat, and that kid's just like, look at them. You can't even tell what race they yeah. are. Well, I don't know if just it's just post Ferguson. Like this is a very LA movie. Like this was this is two years after Rodney, right. two years after Rodney King, and two years after the LA riots. And this movie purports in a weird way that all it would take would be like a civic disaster in order to like make everyone colorblind because, because they're literally covered in ash. Can we, can we quickly do our favorite, uh, (laughs) Tommy Lee Jones fragment Ah, lines? Okay. You got to go first. Oh, tremendous heat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I also liked, and this is not a fragment, but a full sentence, uh, find me a scientist. (laughs) Oh, find me a scientist. Think we have one of those chocolate donuts with the little sprinkles on them. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones has like the weirdest looking face. Can we talk about this for a second? Sure, we got all kinds of time, baby. 
like his face like doesn't look like a normal human's no, face. No, right? it's it looks damaged, but it looks confident. But it's sort of like a cartoon face. Yeah. Yeah, I love this movie for its like weird asides. Like there's the thing where she just gets out of that losing her friends and like someone because they're looting, they steal like her like air tank. Like that's just a funny like visual yeah. joke. Yeah. And I like the thing, too, where the two, like, security guards are moving the paintings out of the art museum. Mm -hmm. And he says, like, this painting's heavy. And the other guy says, it's like, well, that's because he deals with mortality and man's desire to, like, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) He's like, no, I just meant it was heavy. There are some cringeworthy moments, like Tommy Lee Jones jumping off the hood of his car to get over the lava. Um, I don't like seeing the Zodiac killer in anything. So that was disturbing to me in this movie when he was burned alive. Oh, you mean Drew Carey's brother from the Drew Carey show? I think that's who I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, Stan with the nicotine problem. Yeah. The guy that Gyllenhaal can't put the finger on in that three hour Fincher movie. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I thought these, the movie, like, its holes were kind of funny, too. Like, its sort of assessment of logic. Mm-hmm. I mean, where it made me it was... believe. It made me believe its stuff, though. When Anne Hesch was like, all we need to do to redirect the flow <laughs> is to go this way. And Tommy Lee Jones like, I'll get 100 people on it. And then, like, that's, I like, I bought in. Well, I just thought it was interesting. Even early on, they're like, oh, we can't get down, like, the shaft because uh, the police are here. It's like four guys or like seven guys maybe got murdered or something. And she's just like, well, let's just wait till they like before they get on their shift. It's like, aren't they watching this spot at all times? Is there just like a point at which like the police give up? Yeah. What do we think about this movie? It's so different. I was so pleasantly surprised. Really? Did you like this? I did like it. I would almost, I'm going to go so far as to give this movie a soft, good, good. Oh, I'm right there with really? you, buddy. All you right, know, good. if it's John Corbett as like the heartless real estate developer, or like the the guy on the cell phone, like literally narrating the movie for you, like this movie's got great things yeah. in it. And it certainly has some bad things, which we haven't gone into, and we won't. Um, but uh, can I mention one that's just sort of charming? Sure. I love love just like the level of effects in this movie at points like at points it's really good but then they like try to make you pretend that like 10 white dots are a bunch of helicopters (laughs) (laughs) yeah it survives like because it shows you things from so close up that they don't look horrible but yeah also like you know at the end when Tommy Lee Jones is running through like trying to beat out the chain of detonations like that doesn't look great but you know 18 years ago coming up on or coming up on 19 that's that's amazing for this movie to have aged that well mm-hmm. good good for me as well all right <laughs> should we uh should we move on to Dante's Peak Oh, you mean other movies about lava bombs playing by their own rules? Oh, Dante's Peak, man. Directed by Roger Donaldson, uh, who was at the helm for his... Didn't he also do Tomorrow Never Dies? I don't think so, because I think I would have written that one down. 
Okay. I've got him down for the recruit and thirteen days were his big Oof. his big directorial uh foyers. Don't you kind of bait to uh thirteen days? A little bit. Yeah, I feel like you have like a little bait to that. Movie. I like any movie that has the courage to put Bruce Greenwood in a non supporting role. <laughs> oh yes. Okay, let's talk about the thing that uh, appears in the credits right away that should tell you that Dante's Peak is going to have its problems from the outset. Shouldn't the main theme of your movie be by the person who composed the soundtrack? They shouldn't be by different people. (laughs) That isn't a good sign. No. (laughs) That should be... (laughs) I didn't notice that. (laughs) That should be the thing you should get squared away immediately. Yo, but the Dante's Peak theme is so good, though. Okay. It's such a, like, this movie is about a fucking volcano exploding and, like, ruining this town. Like, you can tell from, like, the first note. In the town of Dante's Peak, a volcano is turning nature into a nightmare. Come on! Pierce Brosnan is our main geologist in this movie. Um, And the first four minutes is just an assault on the senses of uh, what a a Filipino volcano erupting. Where does, where does his wife say the people are just dressed like not American. Yeah. It might as well be Vesuvius. And uh, (laughs) we cut from that into the worst set of pushups by a leading man you've ever seen. It's supposed to show that he's broken. <laughs> you want to get those hands under the chest, buddy, and tuck the elbows back against the body. Uh, what is he, what is he doing? It's tough to say, but he's doing a lot of them. Oh, he's doing yeah. them fairly quickly. <laughs> he's getting oh his workout God. in so he doesn't have to when he's trapped in that mine for who knows this how long. This movie, correct me if I'm wrong, but of even the six movies we're talking about... This is definitely the most graphically violent. Um, yeah. Yeah, probably. like, from the first scene, you see his girlfriend, like, take a rock to the skull. And then, it, like, it cuts back to her. There's, like, blood, like, gushing out of her. <laughs> it's, like, pretty gross. And then you see his bone later. Like, that's terrifying. Oh, man. Uh, it's got real... The thing about Dante's Peak... Okay, we, we'll set, let's set it up real quick. Yeah. So Pierce Bronson, as we alluded to, is a widowed uh, geologist who is, f- from the movie's execution, the problems begin as soon as actors need to speak to him in broad daylight without the sounds of things crashing, muffling their voices. Um, but he's called into the office and uh, Dante's Peak, which is, is it in Washington? It's a Paci- yeah. Pacific Northwest, yeah. Uh, it's gonna blow. It's it's your it's your Mount St. Helens. It's your it's your recast Mount. Well, they don't know it's gonna blow. It's just been hiccuping a little. They say it's been hiccuping a little, and from there, it's very much kind of like a horror movie Jaws type setup. That's what I wrote down. Is this the Jaws of volcano movies? It really is because you have the thing where they like bring the town leaders together and they're like, "This it is about to be the goddamn Fourth of July." And right, yeah. Well, the thing is like. It doesn't affect that enough people that if they left like with a reasonable amount of time, they wouldn't all survive. Right. The real issue here is not killing them, but killing any sort of economic prospects for this new town. Yep. 
So, but the score is very horror-y. And then, like, you have the first, oh, yeah. you have the first thing, which is like your stereotypical slasher thing, where this like sexy tourist couple is just boiled alive in this uh, <laughs> when they're skinny dipping in hot springs, which is like something out of the right. Jason movies or something. I mean, it's a moral. This movie makes a like a morality call, and it's don't fuck in the hot spring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the knife wielding maniac is replaced by the volcano. Um, yeah. So, so we were arguing about this via text before we started. I <laughs> think that Pierce Brosnan cannot bring himself to make eye contact with any extras or less than leading supporting actors in this movie like i think they speak to him and he just kind of like looks at his watch and mumbles in his like the best american is he even trying to do an american accent he's still british no he's still british he mumbles he's still british yep. he's lived all over yeah um see i disagree with you i think that you think he's happy I mean, to be I don't there think it, i don't i just don't agree with your assessment of it like i don't think pierce brosnan like is a good actor i just think that what makes him okay for this role is he has like two things he does really well and he shows them off here, which is like fascinated and just like horrified. (laughs) I think. And those are the two things. Like every time he talks to someone, he's just like fascinated in that way. That's like, you know, I'm not going to tell you anything about myself, but I'm going to be really interested what you have to say i think the same year he was in his second james bond movie this dude was pissed to be around these blue collar people and is nothing but like revulsion for them i don't know i think he sees this as like now i'm gonna do some serious acting with my other emotions uh fascinated (laughs) in terror oh my god i just okay well moving on from that i think he just he has trouble trying to prove that he's human to these people who are very obviously like kind of folksy townspeople. There's that moment where the kids are like, we want to go to grandma's and he takes a beat and looks at Linda Hamilton and is like, it's okay. You can take the kids to your mother's like Pierce. You don't have to prove, you know what a grandma is to like the people like that. You can translate the linguistic code that is grandma. And is there the other time where he says, uh, how about a nice adult beverage? Like, don't, right. don't please don't be like a, a person who's trying to <clears throat> trick people into drinking. Like, he has trouble pretending he's normal. What I think is interesting, too, is like, they definitely told the costume designer for like Pierce Brosnan's outfits, like, this guy spends a lot of time outdoors. Yes. So it, all of his outfits are always like, like sort of aggressively casual for like any circumstance he's in. Mm hmm. Yeah. I just think it was so, like, at one point he's just wearing, like, an orange jumpsuit for no reason, you know, and otherwise he's wearing just sort of, like, a battered khaki, like, sort of windbreaker. Like, it's so good. Linda Hamilton, who you'd know from the Terminator movies, is the is the mayor of And pretty Dante's much speak. nothing else. Yes. But what's on... Un- yeah, she's the mayor. Mayor Wanda. What's unclear is why the geologist from the National Survey needs the mayor of the town to go around taking water samples. Couldn't he do that without the mayor and her kids? Right. On, on clearly, like, an important day for her and, like, her pretty minimal job. Yeah. Like, as the mayor. Yep. <sighs> Interesting. I think, and I talked to... 
uh, my girlfriend about this, so I'm not completely out of left field on this one. I think that Linda, that Linda Hamilton's hair in this movie is a bigger natural disaster than the volcano <laughs> itself. Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's primped. Is that, was that the word? It's so bad. It just goes off in so many like bizarre and unexpected directions, much like the plot of this movie towards the end. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. I think that the setup of, well, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, we don't have to duck all the way back to it now, but like the thing with all of these movies, because they're so firmly embedded, like plane thriller, volcano disaster, asteroid disaster, like we know where it's going, right? We know where all of them are going. It's really easy to separate like how much you're enjoying the setup from how well it transitions into a bigger, more intense, more emotional movie. Right. Um, and some of these do them a lot better than others. I think Dante's Peak is having so much trouble in the setup because it's because uh, maybe the people in the supporting cast, the people, the other geologists have like, they might be actual geologists. They cannot deliver lines with like any modicum of confidence or comfort. They're like yelling and speaking too quickly. Like, yeah. it's like basic are these people actors type shit. But yeah. I think the movie gets. I think the movie actually gets better when the shit goes down. Do you disagree? Yeah. I think this movie is... That's why I, I'm sort of hesitant to write this movie off completely. Because I think, like, unlike most um, movies of this genre, um, natural disaster, uh, it, it doesn't hang on the smartness of the setup. Not at all. You know, it has the same. It has the same ambitions of like a Michael Bay movie, um, but it definitely takes itself way more seriously. So when you do hang with the action, sort of of the like last half, it's pretty good, if not like completely ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it has. I would say from the moment the volcano is about to erupt to the grandma dying, I like actually got into a place of stress. So that's like maybe 20 good minutes. But like, the thing is like, if you were just a person checking this out, if it was streaming on Netflix, like you would turn it off. Like it's not, it's not, it's not good. Okay. You want to hear a wild, uh, a wild aside? Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear it. So I think, so Pierce Brosnan has been widowed from what, four years ago. He hasn't been with anyone in that time. I don't even know if they were married. I just think he like liked this. That, they were they shared oh, that's a car right. once. They were they were people who were married to their jobs, but were uh, vol like uh, volcanic geologists, so volcanists, volcanologists. Or, yeah, something like that. And what happened? Yeah, yeah. Where's Linda's husband? Uh, she like he like ran off. He ran off. So there are these there are these middle aged good-looking people who haven't had sex in a long time and right before the volcano erupts they're like chest to chest in her coffee shop that she runs because like being the mayor in a small town just doesn't pay the bills and they're having this intense conversation about like you know like whether they can be together in a physical way because it's been so long for both of them i think i think the volcano erupting is just like a freudian hallucination of these two like late 30 somethings early 40 somethings Trying to have sex after all these years. Interesting. Yeah, I wrote down whose volcano erupts first, Dante's <laughs> or Harry's. 
that's such a good name. For, that's such a good name for his character, Harry Dalton. But another, but another amateurish mistake. You can't have a character named Terry in a movie where there's a Harry and they yell Harry and Terry <laughs> over and over again. You can't do that. Oh my god. Ugh. That's so funny. Did you notice that the the visual like cues for this movie were sort of strange? That like they would show horrible things like three times. They no. show the shots of the dead squirrels. They show the dead fish. They show the initial eruption, and they show his bone three <laughs> times. Like they cut back to like reaction bone reaction bone <laughs> or like volcano faces of people volcano fa- and that stupid shot of linda hamilton's face reflected on the car window <laughs> uh, uh. they were just trying to get through man um yeah i've made my case this i think this movie it has a mo- it has a moment about an hour in that like i said lasts about 20 minutes but it's bad bad i would not recommend this to anyone I completely disagree. What? I think this movie, at its core, is perfect, perfect bad good. No. It's it's so good. You just, you have this, this sort of like, uh, sort of old smoky quartz crystal of uh, an actor <laughs> up there. Just give it. <laughs> oh. You have... A smoky quartz crystal of an actor up there just doing magic tricks in every scene, trying to impress you, trying to show you that he's worth watching. And God damn it, he is. And I like to see like that small town destroyed. I like to see grandma get her like her legs melted. I think it's uh, I like to see the the snorkel, the snorkel on the fucking uh, four by four. This movie's trying to drive on the lava of plot, um, right. which is a whole, its wheels are spinning and it's bad, bad. Let's move on. So our we're pretty much going through these in the order we watched them, and our our last two are a pair of twin plane thrillers from the year two thousand and five. We're jumping forward a little bit. We're gonna talk about Red Eye and Flight Plan. And you want to do Flight Plan first? I would love to start with Flight Plan because like its initial. Its initial spell is wearing off on me. I, I watched it like two hours ago. Okay, yeah, me too. And, and I feel like I need to discuss like the feelings I'm now having like as its as its moviness sort of like seeps into me a little bit more. I got you. It's 2005, as I mentioned. Uh, Robert Schwenkta was the director, a German American director who did the much maligned R.I.P.D. The uh, not Oof. the not to be maligned time traveler's wife, and then insurgent. So, I think this was kind of his one effort at making like a smart, dark, short sort of movie, and we can talk more about that. But uh, yeah. do you want to synopsize? Well, can we talk about this? Well, can we talk about the genre first? Yeah, yeah, of course. I summed it up as movies about women who get fucked over on airplanes for movie reasons. That's pretty good. I would say movies that are bound by flight, the beginning and ends of flights, that hinge on a per- on a man with creepy longish hair who we're not supposed to assume is immediately a giant creep. Okay. So that's fine. We too. can mash those together, and that's that makes up that makes one genre. 
So can I do the plot for this one, Chance? Do it. Jodie Foster. Well, the the movie begins in sort of a, a weird visual, cue sort of way where you know this movie's going to be like a little bit psychological. Yes. So like, so it starts out with Jodie Foster like alone at this subway station in Germany and like then her husband's there and then he's kind of not. And then she goes to the house and like just her daughter's there and she's like sleeping with the daughter and then like guys are maybe watching her through the window, but maybe they're not. And then it turns out that the husband, her husband has died. He like fell or something. You're not sure what happened. Right. And she has to uh, identify him in a German morgue. And she has to identify his body. And then you figure out that he's dead because it was the same guy from like 30 seconds ago. Anyway, that's, and then it leads to them leaving Germany with his body in a coffin that they have to put on an airplane. And then her and her daughter go back to America to live with her, her parents or her in-laws or something. Yeah. They got to bury him in America. And he, on the flight from Germany, from Berlin in to this, New York. like really for Berlin to New York, uh, on this like big fucking plane that still has like that new plane smell about it. Yeah. It's like a luxury sort of transatlantic airliner that she, she knows the design of, by the way, she works for this company. Right. Um, and then, so she like falls asleep because she like clearly hasn't slept in a while on the play. And Jodie Foster, this is, and she wakes up and like her already kind of like weirdo daughter has disappeared. And you quickly find out that like no one believes Jodie Foster even had a daughter on the plane. And because of those like weird visual cues earlier, you also are really not sure whether or not Jodie Foster, even though you've seen these them interacting, whether or not she had this daughter. You don't know what the movie's doing with you most of the time. Did you happen to see a little girl go by here? No. I'm looking for my daughter. No, she's six, my daughter. I was, I was carrying her. She board. has uh, sandy she's hair. She's probably carrying a chenille bear. We can't find my daughter. Does anybody remember seeing the girl? No. No, sir. What aren't you telling me? What aren't you telling me? I'm sorry, but I don't think that she's here. This is a weird movie because this movie has a higher profile only because Jodie Foster is in the lead role, right? Like, it's it comes yeah. in this string of movies where Jodie Foster, like, playing on the resonances of her success as Clarice Starling, like, 15 years before, is, like, a very right. can-do, underestimated woman uh, in a dark action movie. And like she she done the brave one and she done panic room. And it was like all these movies were like if you oh, panic yeah, room. If you, like you put Jodie Foster in a moment of absolute crisis, like she'll come through for you. But it was strange because if you look at the director Schwenka's resume that I went through earlier, which is so bad, um, it, 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 it leaves you with a weird question of like whether and there was like, a, you know, because there's like a German tinge to this movie, too. Like it was sort of like his breakout English language movie. It made me wonder if this movie was remotely mainstream, if Jodie Foster isn't doubling down on this like one kind of character that she would played in these sort of thirty five million dollar action movies. Right. It's kind of strange. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, well, I think this movie's major flaw, and we can get to it um, pretty quickly here since we're on five of six. Um, this movie doesn't make any goddamn sense in any, like in any way. It's kind of hard to like digest it because mm-hmm. ultimately the reveal is nonsense. Like the reveal is total nonsense. And, like, even the setup is kind of nonsense. So, like, it's hard to... I mean, it thinks that it is really dark and quick and smart. Like, it wants to let you know right away, like, this... Well, it thinks it's like a David Fincher movie on a plane. Exactly. Like, I'm a psychological action movie with a female lead under your Netflix category. Um, Right. Like, it wants to let you know that right away with its... With its soundtrack and with like her weird interactions with people as she goes. Oh, that James Horner score. Yeah, and when she talks about like, like hiding her daughter, like her daughter says she's scared. Like, oh, I could hide you under my coat if you want. Um, like, like okay, so that's your excuse, like not to have her seen by people. Like, if I think the dialogue is pretty good. I do too, but I think I think it dials into that one thing that it wants to be. But I think ultimately it ends up being. It ends up having the same beats as these big action movies. Like it, right? It, it's kind of fun. It doesn't know what it is. It really wants to be this one thing quite desperately, and I think it ends up being something a little bit bigger and dumber ultimately. It just sort of it's just such an interesting choice that they chose to make the plane so big. You know? Yeah, it's an Airbus, like four hundred some people. Right. And it's just like, I think that sense of claustrophobia, Mm -hmm. you know, would have made it such a better movie. Like, there's never really that moment other than like a couple of times where she like can't get wherever she needs to be or she can't hide behind something. Yeah. And so like, why does this even the only reason it's on a plane is to like get them away from like civilization. But it just seems so devicey but then not devicey does that make sense definitely because it loves and that's actually probably the best part of the movie it loves the idea that a person could go missing like it loves minutes 30 through 60 where you have to wonder could a person really go missing on a plane and no one around you have seen and like these various storage containers and things like like, but the answer's no. The answer's no. Like, yeah, that's you're right on. Yes, but like that's what I find so troubling about the movie is that like there's no way. And like, spoiler alert: this movie came out ten years ago. The fact that uh, the bad guy Peter Sarsgaard, the fact that Sarsgaard was betting on the fact that no one would see her is so illogical. They're like, how did she know that she'd be up against the window and no one would see her? Yeah. See, like, the leap you have to go through in the idea of common sense of if someone, like, was in a seat in a fucking airplane, yes, someone would notice that they were gone or that they got on the plane. Yeah. Even if you had, even if you had the woman, like, doctor the manifest. Yeah. Like, it's just, the the setup of the movie is illogical. Well, okay, so see, that's why I hinged on the, when we were giving our joke, joke genres at the beginning. That's why right. I hinged on that thing. I think the issue, in some ways, with to, to spoil my critique a little bit, with both of these movies, is you have, 
your heroine on the plane. And then you have this guy that's going to be integral to the plot. And you need him to be charming and kind of... You need him to be normal. And in both cases, he is so creepy from the first thing he says that, like, his character is ruined. Like, Sarsgaard... From, like, the minute he asks the flight attendant about the movie and, like, every interaction he has is just, like, you're the most suspicious person in the world. See, but you're supposed to write that off just because he's the the air marshal. He's supposed to be, like, that was what he was hiding to make him creepy. Right, but I didn't write that off. I think the thing with any of these movies where it's, like, where you wonder if your protagonist is the crazy one, they need to leave you with doubt and they need to leave you with a string of doubt like at a bunch of different points and this movie ended up painting in really broad strokes it never gave me any reason to think that Jodie Foster was not crazy and then all of a sudden it's just like but she is because I'm that kind of movie well, that's like the dumb thing about this movie, too, is that it asks you to buy into this insane conspiracy if you're going to believe her. And then yeah. when it turns out it is a conspiracy, it's so dumb. I hesitate to use this movie because I know from past discussions that you and I don't agree on it. But a movie... If you bring up Shutter I, Island I'm right about now. to go Shutter Island. You you know me very, very well. Um, whether we do a movie podcast, I know what you lean on. But the thing that I like about Shutter Island is that it's not good and you have bad taste. <laughs> no, that it conflates the ferocity of the search that the main person has. They're so into the into solving the mystery that their their vigor for solving it makes them seem crazy and that's the perfect i think amount of doubt to inject these kind of stories with like does this person seem crazy because they're the only one who's smart enough to know what's going on or do they seem crazy because they just seem that way and this movie doesn't give jody this movie doesn't give jody foster the first thing you never th- you right. never think that she's right until the movie is just like and she is right and that's kind of stupid that like i think this movie ultimately gives over to its worst big movie instincts which are not to insult big movies but like this is not that's not what this movie wants to be but this movie could easily have been titled my daughter like the, the thing where you know Mothers Who Never Give Up, starring Jodie Foster. Yeah, she never gave up, yells the person as she walks by at the end. As she walks away, just in case you didn't get the moral of the story. As Sean Bean's like, her daughter. And the flight attendant's like, her daughter. Like, so many people have to say it to redeem her. Like, we've been watching the movie. We get it. We get You were dicks to her for all of it. We get it. Sean Bean's great in this movie, though. I wrote down Sean Bean is pretty goddamn good in this movie. (laughs) When he says... um, I would watch him literally take charge in any conversation. Can you overlook the uh, plot-driven Islamophobia there? Yeah, this movie's got a a weird... It's a red herring, though, so it wants you to forgive it. Right, and then she picks up her, uh, the guy picks up her purse at the end, so oh, all is forgiven. God, yeah. Oh, hold on. So Noah Ballard. 
What's up? I mean, this is my second uh, movie where we should have got a David Morris appearance. How is the guy who madly suspects the Middle Eastern passengers of terrorism <laughs> not played by David Morris? Oh, my God. That role was he was born to play that role. I think what keeps Flight Plan for me from being bad good is the fact that the movie is so obsessed with like fluorescent light Mm -hmm. that like it almost becomes grating to watch. It's hard to look at. It's like if the whole movie was shot on the Armageddon asteroid. Right. And it doesn't much care for making any sense, (laughs) which I'm going to fault it for in this particular circumstance. Uh, I'm going, I'm going Bad, soft, bad, bad. It has its merits, but bad, bad nonetheless. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to go bad, good, because I think it's a movie that it thinks it's so smart, and because of its tone and its style, it thinks it has to be smart, and I think it's really just a dumb, fast-paced thing that is over in 90 minutes, so pretty watchable. Right. Oh, it's very brief. Yes. That was good. Very brief is good. I like I like that about both Flight Plan and Red Eye is that because of the boundaries of the long nighttime flight like they don't it doesn't waste a lot of time because spatially it can't right yeah red eye so are you on this very delayed flight to miami mm-hmm. yep you sadly yes mm-hmm. hi is this taken no it's all yours so are you heading home yeah trying That's actually my seat. You're kidding. You're not kidding. The name's Jackson. Lisa. So what do you do? As fate would have it, my business is all about you. I was watching this movie with my whole family the other night. And really? So there was this really great moment because like my dad really like he really cares for like Brian Cox as an actor for some reason. <laughs> sure. And Manhunter, Born Supremacy. Whatever it was. And um, he was like, he saw in the opening credits, like, oh, Brian Cox is in this. And he, like, got comfortable on the couch. <laughs> and then he saw, like, how, like, what Brian Cox's character was and immediately went upstairs and, like, went to sleep for the rest of the night. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you grab any Big Rod reviews? I didn't. I completely forgot. Oh, that's all right. Maybe for next, I think I think what we should do for a genre is have like a dad off. Mm. <laughs> that would be hilarious. That could be the next Megapod, like three films of Big Rod's choosing and three of Dig Dug's choosing, and how fucking different they would be. Right, and they have to at least do like a minute, like a uh, yeah. mini pod on each one. God, Big Rod would choose like Gettysburg with Tom Selleck, and Dig Dug would choose like Ricochet with Denzel and Ice T. Like it would what be would the, what would so the genre different. be like just their favorite movies. I think I think we I think if you d- we're gonna do it like an, a second Megapod, which I think the audience is begging for at this point. We haven't uh, even finished recording the first one. <laughs> that it would be three of Big Rod's favorites and three of Dig Dug's favorites. Dig Dug would pick Whale Rider. I know he would. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It would be so Whale, funny. Why would because Dig Dug's high watermark for for film is, and I quote, a good story, a realistic, <laughs> comma, good story. That's what he, that's his 
That's his benchmark. Interesting. I think my father would pick um, Zulu. (laughs) (laughs) With Michael Caine? (laughs) With Michael Caine. Anyway, Red Eye, 2005, 10 years ago. America had been introduced to Killian Murphy, yes? Same same year as Batman Begins. Through Batman Begins. um, And Wes Craven, famous horror director, uh, the original Hills Have Eyes, uh, Scream. uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, big brand names. Uh, And Rachel McAdams, America's Sweetheart from The Notebook. Oh, and Wedding Crashers. And Wedding Crashers. I love MC Adams. This is a strange Wes Craven movie, right? Because it's like this attempt for him to go back to sort of realist basics. But I would argue, and I want to hear your response to this, that he goes too far back to basics. That this movie at like less than 90 minutes is tight at some points, but is kind of just like... It's plain in some ways where the suspense doesn't work. It's naked. Well, that's the weird thing about this movie is that, like, its conceit is, like, very tight shots of, like, mm-hmm. faces and, like, people talking. But and then, in a like, tight space on a plane. Right. But then, like, a, in the last third of it, it zooms out to, like, include bazookas and, like, the blowing up of a hotel. Yeah. So it's, like, it's such a weird... And they end up on the ground anyway. I feel like it has to end on the plane, don't you? Yeah, it did not do a good enough job, a la flight plan of because it didn't really like live up to the promise of like what it was, you know. Or this was a movie where it made sense to me to separate setup from uh, kind of climactic execution because I think the setup is quite like quite intriguing, but I think by the time the full plot comes to bear you kind of realized how ill-equipped it is to deal with like what it wants to do which i guess we can spoil it too because so it turns out that so mc adams plays the kind of like manager who all the customers like trust as a friend at this hotel uh in miami who like these famous people trust and like she can arrange all these things at the hotel and she arranges this room for the director of home and security. And the person she ends up sitting next to on this flight, who's like charmed her in the airport and bought her a drink, Killian Murphy, um, ends up sitting next to her and is sort of like a terrorist fixer. You might say like, I have this one job to do and that's for you to change the room at your hotel of the director of Homeland security. Um, so we can bazooka him from the harbor and i think the setup is really good and killian is so creepy and you know like he's the kind of he's the kind of actor who can have chemistry with anyone because well i kind of disagree with a little bit of what you're saying okay go ahead sure i don't think the setup is that he charms her like i was watching it pretty closely because i'd seen this movie before remembering remembering that premise but i don't think he really is like charming i think the point of it is like he's one of those guys who like you're kind of stuck with okay but i think i agree i i'm not disagreeing with you but don't you think the movie thinks he's charming i think he's creepy for it's like i have written down like wouldn't it be horrible if you were going through life thinking you were like a smooth operator but you were actually killian murphy like he's he's so creepy but i think the movie thinks he's charming 
Well, that's the that's the weird thing about like the initial turn when it turns out that he is not just a random stranger on this plane. He like has arranged all this. Um, right. That turn isn't that weird because what well, the script thinks it's weird, but like you've already known that this guy's a nightmare from like even his first interaction with her, like trying to like like avoid a confrontation with that guy in line to check in. Like, it's not, like, smooth. It's just, like, weird. And the guy just, like, doesn't want to deal with it, so he stops. Yeah, Killian Murphy, like, doesn't really do charming. No. And, that's, and I think it's because, like, you can't be charmed by someone who's, like, for some reason his face is, like, an optical illusion where it appears he doesn't have a <laughs> nose. Oh, man. And his eyes are so big. They're so big and they're so blue, but he at any moment appears to not have a nose. So I guess my big criticism is maybe going too far in that I just wanted it to be a different movie. I remembered watching this when I was 16 and I was just like, I didn't remember that he was a kind of pseudo government operative. I thought he was like a guy who was obsessed with her because... She's beautiful, and, I mean, MC Adams is great. I thought he was just, like, a creeper, and it's right. not true, and when he kind of reveals his thing, it's just like, oh, shit. Like, I wanted the obsession to come to bear more, and it wasn't obsession. It was just marksmanship. Right. Well, he's pretty proud of himself yeah. for what he's done, like, pretty quickly, which is an interesting look. What I do like about the movie is that it's funny because Wes Craven is like having fun making fun of the script. So I think like there's kind of like a funny moment when it reveals that not only is he a creeper, he's like so much more of a headache. Yeah. Like when she thinks he's like kidding and it's like, he's definitely not kidding. Like you have to now deal with this because that's the whole point of the movie is she knows how to deal with people and he didn't expect that. And like he never that's the reason she wins. Um, that's a great point. He kind of this is like a mini version of like a perfect stranger movie mm-hmm. condensed into like 20 minutes. And then it just right. kind of turns it kind of turns away from that. And I think I would have liked to watch the whole perfect stranger movie. But yeah, you make yeah. a good point. Yeah. Is there before we get to our ratings, is there a point at which it lost you or were you pretty gripped the whole time? Um, I just thought it was like a bit of fun. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a 90-minute movie, which is so... Yeah, like, I think, like, I'm sort of talking myself around on this one, I think. The better version of this movie is one where you care about the characters, even though one of them is a sociopath. And by the end, like, you know, they are, have, they've deplaned and they're (laughs) speeding to her dad's house in Miami, and you just don't want her to die. And it's shot in broad daylight, and the camera work is pretty good. Um, and it just turns from a movie that I think could have been better and could have had more characters, but like you're still pretty concerned about who gets stabbed to death in this movie, um, right? E- even though you have like Killian Murphy in the last like 20 minutes, does he? He must trip over five or six different inanimate objects, right? Um, he's just his legs are just not with him, and then he gets of course shot in the leg. Yeah, and you have this thing where um, he he the thing he prides himself on most is being a professional at this job he has, whatever it is. 
And then like when he finally catches up with her, she's just like, are you, aren't you going to leave me alone or something? And he says, unprovoked, I never lie, which is like not a, not a line that like his character has earned in any right. way. But by that point, they're, by that point, they're just saying whatever they can to each other in order for one of them to run away and for the other person to chase. Like, it's all, it's, you know, it's a 90-minute movie, and the last 30 minutes is all rhythm. And that's pretty inoffensive. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to go ahead and give it a uh, bad good. You, you got to give it a bad good. Thank you. I'm right there with you. You can't even be volcano. What do you got it when you get so stoned? You can't even see volcano. To misquote Sean Connery in The Untouchables, here endeth the motherfucking Megapod. And if you made it to the end, I hope you yourself had a giant bottle of Pinot Grigio. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or some, like, horrible layover. <laughs> right. Um... Happy Thanksgiving, Noah. I love you. This is a public I love you. I love you. you too. I'm I'm thankful for you in this podcast. It keeps me going along with uh Nicorette gum and uh caffeine. Let me tell you some more stuff. You can follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love for you to subscribe on iTunes. That would mean a lot or you know the uh podcast app on your phone. You can review us if you want. Review us would be nice if it's a positive review. If it's a negative review, don't fucking bother, please. And no, I think it'd be interesting if someone thought we were bad, bad. Maybe we get some like constructive criticism. I don't think that's how iTunes algorithm works, so that would not be beneficial to us. Well, um, I would want people to be honest, though, in the spirit of you, the show. If you want to be honest, email us at berealguys.com. That would be better. Pu- or you can tweet at us. But for public posting. Yeah, tweet at us. At berealguys. I think that's it. I want, there's no gas left in the tank over here in Brooklyn. <laughs> From Ocean Shores, Washington, Noah Ballard, you're my guiding light, and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Oh, Megapod. Okay, 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 okay.